0: The work of an influencer never stops. Max Levchin hit it rich at age 27. Then he went right back to the office. In 1999, Levchin co-founded PayPal, which was sold to eBay three years later for $1.5 billion. Levchin gained a $100 million fortune from the deal. Soon after, he launched Slide, a social networking business that he sold to Google for hundreds of millions. He now runs yet another company, the digital loan business Affirm, and other endeavors as well. Levchin is here to talk about how to find and build successful tech startups over and over again. And welcome to Influencers. I'm Andy Serwer, and welcome to our guest, Max Levchin, CEO of a firm, co founder of PayPal, part of the PayPal mafia, and a million other endeavors. Maybe just a polymath, we can call you that. We'll get into all the things you've done. Anyway, welcome. Good to see you. Good to see you. So, Max, how would you describe what you do to, say, an eight year old nephew? What do you do for a living? What's your work?
1: So I normally tell people I start and run companies. That's kind of a one, one liner introduction. But uh, when pressed, I revert back to I just write code. That, that's kind of how I think of myself: a coder, a coder, a hacker, a builder, a company starter. Is that I haven't thought of this one.
0: Okay. Be careful. All right. Well, maybe we can loop back to it. Why don't you tell me about a firm, your latest company, right now?
1: Uh, it's been the latest company for over seven years. So it's a, a bit of a bit of a long in a tooth startup, but still very much a startup. Um, the, it's a bit of a throwback to my PayPal day. So PayPal was all about innovating above the credit card rails where we took credit cards, which 20 years ago were really hard to use online and built a user interface, which turned out to be much more than a user interface to make it easy to use in a browser and uh, online commerce was never the same. 20 years later, it took me a long time to realize that, the underlying infrastructure, the, the, the what's below the rails, below the ground, isn't especially well-made. It's not transparent. It's not especially consumer-friendly. It has its own user interface problems, makes money on people's mistakes, kind of at a very fundamental level. And so I wanted to go back in there and see if it can be remade better. Um, so seven and a little bit of years ago, we started a company with initially just a very narrow view of, let's do a better job scoring credit. So so the venerable credit score that everybody uses today is pretty opaque, it's not really clear. There's plenty of information online where this fraction is how much credit you have used and this fraction is how much money you make, but there's not a whole lot more to it that's been well understood. And as a result, for personal experience, I came to the US as a teenager, had to have my PayPal co-founder sign for my first car loan, my first cell phone. Um, you know, This is after PayPal IPO. So your, your credit history is, is not exactly well utilized as your credit is being assessed. And so a firm initially was this idea, let's build a better score. Let's build something that's transparent, let's, that's inclusive, that brings people in where they're being excluded. And then it expanded from there, where at this point we are embedded at the point of sale as a lender of record. So when someone wants to buy a thing We will underwrite you, tell you, hey, here's how much credit we can offer you. We'll actually pay the merchants and we'll take the risk on you and finance um, your purchase, and then we'll bill you over time. Um, The cool thing about Affirm, through this commitment to transparency, we price everything in dollars as well as rates, so you know exactly how much you will pay all in. So your principal, your interest, Mm -hmm. we stop Add that number. So once you've paid us the the amount we promised that you will, you cannot pay us more. Which means we don't compound interest into the principal, but more importantly, we don't charge fees of any kind, including no late fees. And so as a result, it's probably the most honest or transparent financial product out in the market. And that was we did that five years ago and been growing very very quickly since, serving millions of users and billions of dollars lent. keep expanding, keep on adding new financial products. So how do you
0: measure success? I mean, in how many users do you have? Do you have to get accepted by various legacy systems like payment systems, like merchants, et cetera? Um,
1: we measure success by number of users we have. That That is the most important what measure. what is that? Try not to talk in precise numbers, but it's in the single-digit millions at this mm-hmm. point. So I'll, I'll okay. keep it at that. Um, the better measure, I think, is that number in juxtaposition with user satisfaction so you can have a lot of users but if they hate you you're not going to get very far kind of you know places like the dmv come to mind but uh our user satisfaction scores um have been extraordinary the net promoter score for the company basically from inception and through today has been north of 80 yeah last week was 83 i think and so that that's a pretty good sign that most of our users would gladly recommend Affirm to their friends. And when would I use it, though, Max?
0: In other words, how would I when would I want to use this and and try it?
1: Um, If you're buying a Peloton bike Mm -hmm. or a Casper mattress, both great companies right here in New York City, um, you would find us offered at the point of sale. And the choice there is yours. You can say, hey, I'm just going to buy it with my debit card because I have the cash and I don't need any help, or you might use your credit card, especially if you're sort of hunting for points and you want to double down on those. Uh, But if you're younger or an immigrant or don't like credit cards, whatever whatever sort of a stripe of society Mm -hmm. you come from, there are plenty of people, it turns out, that say, I just want a payment plan that tells me exactly how much money I'm going to owe and when I'm going to be done. And I don't want a card or an account or anything to chase me down later and make me spend more money or charge me fees I didn't expect. So that's what a firm will, will do for you. About a third of our transactions and more than a third of our merchants offer what's called a 0% loan. So one of the things that you can, you can uh, take this one to the bank, as they say in our industry, if somebody's offering you a 0% rate, it is not a 0% rate. Yeah, right. Like
0: they're, what's they're, the catch,
1: in other words? Yeah, the catch is always there. It's always in a fine print. There's always the pay your loan down during the promotional period, and if you yeah. don't, there's 29.99 rates, but the trick typically is it compounds from time of purchase all the way back. It's called deferred interest with full recapture. It's the nastiest thing in the world, should have been banned. It's been attempted to get banned, but you know, right. some, somehow the industry manages to weasel its way back into allowing it in some form. And so one of the things that we set out to do from the very beginning was let's build a true 0%. But like then that. what's your catch? We don't have one, so the zero percent that you would see at a firm is the only true zero percent. That means that, for example, if you buy a Peloton bike, you will see a zero percent loan.
0: But how do you make money then?
1: Um, we have the merchant pay down the interest. So what's really going on is the merchant is transferring some of their margin mm-hmm. to the consumer. Oh, okay. So it's a it's an entirely honest transaction. What it does do, though, is allows the merchant to preserve their pricing integrity. They're not discounting. They're helping you pay for your bike or your mattress or your whatever it is you're buying over time without ever having to say the price is not really the true price. But there is no catch. There's no late fee. There's no flip to the different okay. rates. And God forbid, there's no deferred interest. And are you wearing a Firm t-shirt, by the way? I always wear a Firm t-shirt. Wow. Okay, that's looking pretty good. San Francisco. Yeah. Um, we now have offices in New York and Pittsburgh as well as San Francisco. So I, I rotate through my logo and locale. Nicely done. Okay. And you mentioned
0: that you came to this country as an immigrant from the Ukraine. Great. And, um, and it shaped your thinking, obviously, when it comes to this company, because you were talking about trying to get credit mm-hmm. um, and that being difficult. Yep. How else did it affect your thinking? You went to the University of Illinois, yep. uh, being a kid from uh, another country.
1: You know, it's the sort of thing that's really hard to self-examine, so any form of, well, here's what I did to, to Little Max, is probably a little uh, facetious or exaggerated, but um, I think I mean, I'm, I'm fairly well known for my outspokenness in favor of uh, certainly certain types of immigration, because I think what it does to you as an immigrant is the sense of unlimited opportunity that just hits you in the face, and you go from, hey, I just escaped something that was constraining my ability to be the best I can be to complete lack of limits. And so I had a an extremely inspiring teenage years and early 20s I was surrounded by people that built the modern internet. So I was at UI, as you mentioned on campus in 93 when Mosaic launched. So, so you do
0: you overlap with Mark Andreessen? Yeah,
1: then? We're uh, we're a couple of years overlapping. Mm-hmm. Um, all of us kind of in the computer science department worked at some time or another at the national center for supercomputing applications where mosaic was developed and the web server was developed so all the kind of the things that we take for granted today weren't around 25 years ago and they were built by the hands of people that were in my school kind of i had a front row seat to how the future would look like and so i entered school thinking PhD in computer science teach be a professor i come from a long line of advanced degrees and Certainly my family expected me to do just that. And um, by the time I was wrapping up junior year, I was like, one, I'm gonna, hopefully I'm gonna graduate because I know my, my parents are gonna murder me if I don't. But the second I'm done with that, I'm gonna just start companies and, and try things. Mm. And um, so in that sense, I think having an immigrant background gives you a little bit of a leg up because you're not afraid of anything. We came to the US with $600 to, for the family of five and um, the expectation was go figure it out. What do you think about President Trump's policies on immigration then? Um, I think that policies on skilled immigration and um, treatment of foreign students. I don't know if the policies have actually been enacted. They've been talked about a lot. Um, But I have a very strong view on what I think is right. I think we should staple some form of work permit and maybe a permanent visa to every advanced degree that we. Give here because what is the point of educating people in fantastic schools from faraway places if they're going to go back to their faraway place and better their country as opposed to the one that gave them education? So I think that's a, a very, very clear place where I have a strong point of view. I don't doubt that immigration is an extraordinarily complex issue, and what certainly from my faraway vantage point, it looks like people like to bundle skilled immigration and various forms of refugee and um, crises at border of various kinds. And I get it that I will never get it. That's why I'm not in politics.
0: Right, right. But in terms of putting up impediments for skilled students, I mean, half of them are going to go back anyway because they want to, but to actually force people to go back doesn't seem to make sense. Yeah,
1: I I think that's just extremely, extremely short-termist.
0: Right. Um, Let's talk about PayPal because it really was kind of a moment in time in the history of Silicon Valley, such as it is, um, and it's become sort of legendary, as I mentioned, there's this PayPal mafia and I, I want to know, you know, what is it about that time and that story that resonates to this day?
1: You know, again, if you're in the soup, it's hard to tell, uh, how the cooking is being done, <laughs> but, um, I think it was just a, an extraordinary time, extraordinary, um, Group of people, I was very lucky to be to be at the uh, at the founding of that. The, I don't remember the exact date, but shortly after we incorporated, Yahoo's stock price, apropos the, the, the chair in which we sit now, went down something like by 90 percent. So the the crash of the uh, the early internet crash. Um, the world was writing internet businesses off. We were sort of looking at ourselves in a mirror, going like, Did we? take the worst time in history to start a company having to do with the internet. And so it was a lot of, we're, we're coming in from an extreme low before we shipped the product, before we did anything. And so that, that was kind of an interesting background noise that shaped us. Um, we were all super young and so was everyone around us, but uh, in terms of people who were starting companies in Silicon Valley at that time, and, and always really, it's, it's sort of the domain of people that have nothing to lose, young or old, but just people that are willing to go head first into a pool with no water. But uh, we, uh, we were surrounded by people telling us this will never work. I remember going to see someone about um, understanding risk in credit card space. And this woman asked me something along the lines of, you know, do, do you have this in place? You know, what's your, you know, your customer procedures? And I, I sort of, I generally held the line even though I was faking it to the nth degree. Then at the end she said something, you know, so what's your chargeback management process? and Something in my face betrayed the fact that I was going like, what are you talking about? <laughs> and she said, oh, my God, you don't know what a chargeback is. Oh, honey, you're done. <laughs> and I walked out of the room like, I must be. <laughs> so so I think that the fact that we're so unprepared and the early successes just emboldened us to certain, you know, We couldn't do wrong. We, we had to keep on trying. And there were plenty of bumps, plenty of things that we, we were absolutely doing very bad things. We almost went out of business numerous times. But um, the people that sort of came together were ultimately really good. And,
0: and who were some of those people? Who, who is the PayPal mafia then?
1: Uh, uh, you know, at this point, I think um, by mutual agreement, there's about 125 co-founders. Okay. <laughs> uh, but uh, so obviously Peter and I started the company. Peter Thiel. Peter Thiel. Um, very early on, Reid Hoffman was our first board member and then eventually an executive vice president. So he sort of did all the um really kind of a super advanced bd type role um, and strategy um people you've heard of in other contexts people like steve chen and uh, chad hurley and Jawed kareem so eventually co-founders of youtube of course um russell simmons not the rapper but right. uh, a slightly less known co-founder of yelp and jeremy stoppelman the better known co-founder of yelp we both in my organization on the technology side of PayPal, started Yelp together a few years later. Um, Ken Howery, Luke Nosek, right. all these guys eventually went up in Founders Fund. Um, Elon Musk, obviously the merger between PayPal and X.com gave birth what PayPal really became. It's a long list. It's I an think. amazing group. And
0: one of my favorite things in my last job, Max, was commissioning that. Photograph. I'm
1: sorry, I think he had a little bit to do with of the, that, with the right. coinage of the Mafia.
0: Exactly, yeah. where we got all of you guys to dress up a la The Sopranos yep. and took that picture of you guys, and you guys were so awesome to cooperate, and the, the photograph is just, to my mind, epic.
1: It is an epic photo, although a number of times it reappears in the press at this point is sort of borderline embarrassing. Right. But uh, it was a great day. We were uh, holed up in a real-life Italian eatery in North Beach, which is a historically Mm -hmm. Italian neighborhood in San Francisco. And... uh, it was not air conditioned. So uh, the, the, the giant globules of sweat on all of our faces are real. Right. Just yeah. Really, really warm. Well, that adds to it. I don't know if that was intentional at the time. No, Reed oh. looked like he was not enjoying. Himself. Reed, was,
0: Reed looked dying. Yeah, that was pretty classic. Um, so as PayPal went forward, you know, it became part of eBay and then it came out and now it's attached with Venmo. And so how has that evolution of payments Proceeded. Does it make sense to you? And is there still room? I mean, you're actually, you're of course, you're part of that world again today. Where does that all stand?
1: So I think the thing that is worth knowing or keeping in mind about payments, credit, lending, banking, it's either the largest or the second largest market in the world. There's there's energy without which we're all kind of, you know, not going to have cameras to film us. But um, other than that, payments is gargantuan. They're, you know. U.S. credit card outstanding balances right now are about trillion dollars. Just give you a sense for it. Like that's just U.S. It's not even the world. So and then you know, volumes of payments going through the world and now the internet are in in many trillions. So there's always room in every niche, every little thing you find in payments where you kind of go, oh wow, that, that little thing's broken. And it re- could really use some fixing is inevitably measured in hundreds of millions of dollars. Like the the little stuff is hundreds of millions. The bigger opportunities, the bigger sort of ideas to revolutionize things are always, they, they quickly become trillions. And so I'm personally always very bullish on any payments, financial services idea because the market is so massive, because the infrastructure is so old. One of the interesting things is actually kind of a neat observation, which I don't hear a lot about, but is absolutely true. The first industry to really embrace computing after, after the war machine was finance. So if you look at people like Amex and people like you know, Citibank, like these really giants of, of financial industry, even in the 70s, they were stocking up an IBM System 360s and AS400s and you know all these sort of classic big iron, biggish iron computing. And that's where they still have, they, they haven't really upgraded. And so in many ways, what was the, early adopter advantage now became shackles that hold some of the largest infrastructure players we have down because they really don't have the ability to say, you know, away with it all, let's build it from scratch with modern technology with better systems. And so that's why disruption has been so plentiful in, in the space. And so yeah, I think the development of you know, P2P payments, Venmo is actually exactly how PayPal started 20 years ago now. And there's plenty of other entrants, and they're all growing at some ridiculous pace. You know, it's Square, not like Stripe. Yeah, there are all these players that, you know, when Stripe launched, it was basically like PayPal minus the business model because PayPal arbitraged card payments against bank payments. Stripe said, no, card payments is enough. And everybody, myself included, said, how are you going to make any money? Like, the margin is this thin, and, you know, 10, so 10, 10, 10 years, later, years later, it's uh, I don't know, whatever it is now, $30 billion company, $25 billion. So company.
0: all these companies can succeed because the marketplace is, I mean, no, no guarantees, but there's room for a lot
1: of them. It's just there's a lot of things that can be done better. The opportunities are plentiful. The market is enormous. Financial services is generally a market that naturally goes to multiple winners there are very very few national monopolies because the markets are internationally speaking for sure markets are large and very diverse what's very successful here could not work somewhere else so you have to be willing to reinvent yourself or let someone else take the market Um, i think the most interesting ideas also emerge when generational divides take Mm -hmm. place so 08 was this watershed moment where a whole generation watched their parents get cleaned or fleeced or whatever you Mm. think they did and so a whole bunch of young people said whatever it is my parents did I'm not doing that mortgages that sounds terrifying I'm not gonna use credit cards that's a bad idea I'm gonna borrow no money and use debit cards that's really great until you need to buy a first car or you need to put a deposit in an apartment so borrowing had to be reinvented the origin of a firm is as much in this idea of let's go clean up borrowing as it is in answering the question, how will young people borrow money if they are so actively saying, I don't want a credit card? Right. So right. That, that, that's where, but these opportunities are everywhere.
0: I want to ask you about another group of uh, tech companies. Uh, one of the other companies that you founded was Slide, which was sold to Google. And then you ended up working at Google for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to ask you about those big platform companies like Google, like Facebook. and. Um, there are a lot of issues these companies are facing right now, sort of from myriad facets and myriad sides. And I'm wondering if you've given thought to how they can rectify their problems. Should they be regulated? Should they be broken up? What is your thinking on that?
1: Those are hard questions to answer. I think the... In are they general, too powerful? The relative measures of too powerful, not powerful enough are always very hard to maybe. They're certainly extremely powerful in the absolute sense. Like, yes, Facebook probably knows far more about me than I think I know about me and uh, that I think anybody should know about me, really, because they're an amalgamation of all my friends' knowledge of, of me. Um, and even more so true of Google. With Facebook, at least, there's some amount of sharing that I do proactively. Google, I I, I met, during my time at Google, I met an executive who likened Google search box to an ear, with the world's giantest ear and... Uh, billions of people come in and whisper into its ear, you know, amazing things like, where do I buy an engagement ring? And also, do I have cancer? And will I die? And it's it's a massive responsibility to hang on to that data and mine it for signal and figure out how to give the right answers and the responsibility that's implicit. in what do you show someone that say, do I have cancer? You may push them to a decision that if you knew what they were going to do next, you would regret. And so in that sense, I think the responsibility on these companies is enormous. And I'm not sure there's one thing they can do or anybody outside of them can do to say, well, here's how you fix the problem. Like, there's a little, at that scale, any company of any industry, you're playing with human condition more than you're playing with balance sheet. So my guess is the first thing they need to do is probably recognize internally, sort of take very, very seriously that what they're playing with is a lot more than their profit and loss and um, features. And I think that's a, that's a weighty, weighty set of responsibilities. My guess is they're going to end up facing a lot of regulatory scrutiny because our lawmakers and, and others are pretty good at dealing with the human condition and thinking in terms of the human condition, while tech companies are actually much better thinking in terms of growth and features and kind of detaching themselves a little bit from what people really... Um, really experience when they use their product. Actually, not to shift to a firm suddenly, but one of the things that I did very early on, influenced by this experience of being inside the belly of one of the largest companies that Silicon Valley ever produced, um, I tried to write down our core values, which I'd never done before. So Mm -hmm. this whole notion of core values, you know, what do we stand for? You know, at PayPal, if I'd said that, I probably would have been sort of chuckled at because we're all super young and we just wanted to grow, we just wanted to build a great company and the morality of it all was something that we cared about but as a side effect to right. like, go build a great business. With Affirm, it was kind of backwards or the other way around where I said, I'm going to write down our core values. I'm not going to write mm-hmm. a line of code until I know what it's for. And we sort of played with this and that and with my co-founders and a bunch of early people and ultimately wrote down five things. But the first one of these is people come first. Mm. And I think um, you have to uh, decide that you feel that before you start writing code. And that's probably what's going to have to happen to a lot of these large platforms that have not necessarily been living the people come first value or their version of the same idea. But um, I don't know, we live in extremely interesting times. I think the fact that uh, these companies wield an extraordinary amount of power is, is starting to really reveal itself in, in big ways. You mentioned
0: lawmakers. Um, you were on the board of the CFPB and Mick Mulvaney disbanded that. What was your I've never been fired that until, yeah. uh, until that time. What
1: was your take? Um, I really enjoyed that process. It was the firing part. No, Uh, the firing part was uneventful. I I called into a a, a conference line, and uh, they said, hey, the board's been disbanded. Thank you for your service. So Mm -hmm. Now, what I know, it feels like, where's my box? You know, I I need my, (laughs) but it was an unpaid position, so there was no no box or service. But uh, the process of hearing from stakeholders from everywhere, like really, really everywhere, was amazing. So, and I live in my own little insular Silicon Valley world. There are people that I think are doing really great jobs, sticking to their moral principles and doing the right thing. And people I think are probably walking the gray line. And people I think really should not be building products that they're building. And I, you know, I, I don't make any secrets of who they are, since I'm was willing to put my opinion out there in the public. But it's very different when you sit down around a table with people that represent or advocate for people from sort of truly impoverished communities, people that are unable to make their mortgage payments and are facing repossession of whatever property that they have. people that are fighting with um, some local agency that was supposed to stand behind their mortgage and is now bankrupt and all the sort of like the reality of life in places that are not like Silicon Valley where we all get paid six digit salaries or higher and these problems just don't really come up in day-to-day conversation was a sort of an amazing window into how this country really works and so if, if you didn't have this sense of You know, people come first, you you walked out of there every time feeling like, wow, like the world is a complicated place and not everybody lives in San Francisco or New York City.
0: What do you think about um, people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez who are looking to address wealth and income inequality by, for instance, raising taxes on rich people?
1: I think in general, what has struck me as amusing and to some extent tragic is that there's not a whole lot of people that are pounding the table for some form of socialism that lived in a socialist setting. Having grown up or spent my first 16 years in a socialist country from personal experience, redistribution does not work because people doing the redistribution somehow always get a lot more. And that you know that's almost too trite of a characterization, but I'm not a fan of significant march into significant redistribution because I've seen how it fails. Mm-hmm. And it works for a while because you're excited or the, you know, the people are, were excited right after the Soviet Revolution in the teens of last century, but fast forward to the 50s and the place was going downhill fast and by the 90s there were tanks on the streets because you couldn't, uh, couldn't contain the populace from uh, tearing the country apart. So I'm, I'm, not, a, I'm not a fan, I'm not a mm-hmm. fan of, uh, of the blunt, Let's right. just get, give the government all the power and all the money, and then everything's going to be okay. Having said that, I think, you know, a lot of the folks in social democratic movement and various forms of sort of very progressive parties that or movements that we have in the U.S. are kind of speaking to the same thing that I observed at the APB board. The income inequality, the desperate nature of life in a lot of these communities right. is very real. So I don't think it's a... My point isn't to ignore or to push it away. Just think the conversation could be more civilized and a little bit less flippant. And um, I remain a big believer in conscious capitalism or more thoughtful capitalism as a way of figuring out how to contribute to elevation of people who have been left behind or who are being left behind. I'm Does that not mean
0: ba- not having short-term goals? I mean, just having broader goals than this
1: Quarters, p for instance? Um, for companies, for sure. Yeah. I think, um, so as, as an engineer, you mm-hmm. know, to, to go back full circle, I write code. Uh, writing code is all about testing and iterating. And I think one of the things that we do a lot of is debate, and not enough of is experiment. The, the most exciting news I've ever heard, whether I believe in it or not, on the um, addressing poverty, is the fact that there's a bunch of places in the US now trying universal basic income. I have no idea if UBI is a solution or not. Mm -hmm. In fact, there have been some reasons to believe that it's not. But we won't know if it works here or not until we try it. So just having, let's ship a bunch of features that try to make the world a better place for folks that have been left behind, observe it for whatever number of years, months, quarters that it takes, and then iterate on it. And I think, to me, the two big areas are figuring out how to train people to prepare them for the next iteration of what the workforce will require. I'm a big believer that jobs are not disappearing, but they're being replaced, and I think that's something very important. And for younger version of our future workforce, just investing very heavily into education, especially education of people that without some form of help will end up on the disadvantaged side of society. I think that's really, really important. And my my hope is that instead of spending too many cycles debating what is the perfect solution and creating what looks like partisan gridlocks, just iterating on good ideas that, you know, there's no shortage of papers and academics and sociologists and economists that all have a really, really strong view, usually backed up by good data, that we then don't even bother testing. We just sort of go right into debate of why it couldn't work. So try more, talk less.
0: Okay. On that note, we're going to wrap things up. Max Levchin, CEO of Affirm, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. I'm Andy Serwer. You've been watching Influencers. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to Influencers. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And follow Yahoo Finance on Twitter at Yahoo Finance and at Serwer.